This is the Talk Editions podcast. It feels like butterflies all over your body. And you're not sure if you're afraid or completely like turned on or what. It's just like... I'm Marina Kifferstein, violinist of talk. And I am Laura Cox, the flutist of talk. And this week we are speaking with our bandmate, talk's vocalist, Charlotte Mundy. Vocalist Charlotte Mundy specializes in music that is new, daring, and sublime. She has been called a daredevil with an unbreakable spine by the San Francisco Classical Voice. Recent performances include George Benjamin's one-act opera, Into the Little Hill, at the 92nd Street Y, and a set of music for voice and electronics presented by the New York Festival of Song, described as an oasis of radiant beauty by the New York Times. In summer 2021, Mundy will present a sound, light, and smell installation called Light as a Feather at the Harvest Works House on Governor's Island. She is also a core member of the Ekmelis Vocal Ensemble. Hello, Charlotte. Hi. How are you doing this fine morning? I'm great. I'm excited to talk to you guys. I'm always excited to talk to you. Yeah, always. (laughs) So I guess we can start off by just asking you a couple questions about your relationship with talk. What are some of the some of the best memories that you have from the early days of talk? Let's go down memory lane. I remember going to rehearsals in the contemporary performance program room in the Manhattan School of Music and being like kind of crowded in there and being like, oh my God, these guys joke so much. Are we ever actually going to play anything? <laughs> like, I don't know if they're serious enough. <laughs> That's fair. But uh, I've since come to learn that, uh, you know, playing around and joking is actually super magic sauce for rehearsal. It's kind of crucial. Magic sauce. Um, and we are all really serious at the same time. And another early memory that makes me really happy is when we played that concert in a basement in um, in like Hamilton Heights. I forget what the name. Central Harlem, I think, 119. Central Harlem, yeah. Um, and I remember it being pretty full and we programmed a really cool set with like, I think Ornations by Taishan Sori was on there. And I don't remember what I sang, maybe... Maybe a piece by Ashkan or... Yeah, and we did a really old piece of David's from maybe 2010. Yeah, and the Zorn Trio, which I think that was the point at which someone in the neighborhood called the police with a noise complaint and like the police shut down the show. That was fun. I was like, we're on the right track. This is good. (laughs) Yeah, that was a Uptown Underground I think, run by Carl Larson and Ravi Katapa. That was a really fun concert. That was really fun. That's a fond memory for me. And also, like, early-ish in the talk progression was going to Iceland, which I also thought was just so cool that I was impressed with Laura's organizational ability to, like, make that happen with the Icelandic composers, Arata. And uh, it was just so cool to play in this the Harpa Concert Hall, which is such a gorgeous 
space in Reykjavik and then to like drive through the mountains on these windy tiny streets and then play in this like northern arctic small town in a elementary school gymnasium it was just such a strange contrast it like felt like such an adventure that was one of my favorite things too yeah that was excellent yeah and they're really fun people to work with also Arata. everyone in that group was like really cool and cool personalities cool music yeah, yeah. Uh, you know give or take driving driving abilities it was a little scary but that's okay <laughs> Yeah, it just kind of uh, lended more to the creation of the whole experience here, whipping around those fjords. Really cements those memories when you're afraid for your life. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So as talk has moved out of maybe these early days, are there, or even in the early days, are, do you have some favorite projects that come to mind that we've done as an ensemble or any particularly standout experiences? Yes. When I think about my like favorite things that talk has done it usually ends up being stuff that is slightly outside of our comfort zone like I think our comfort zone is um, consulting on and then practicing individually and rehearsing collectively and performing notated pieces of music um, and it's really I think we're really comfortable with that um, and there are always things to improve at, but I think we feel like we're pretty good at it. Um, so the things that excite me the most are when we kind of go slightly outside of that realm and still feel like we did a good job. Like um, our music video for Mouthpiece 28 by Aaron Gee is like really precious to me because we all directed it together really collectively and we thought really hard about it. And I think that the final product encapsulates a feeling that is part of the piece that you couldn't actually get even from just listening to the audio recording um, or watching a standard performance video of the piece. Um, we, we captured like a vibe, which is I think what a good music video does. Um, and I'm happy that like for a new music video, kind of a lot of people have seen it. I think that's cool. And um, another project that is a highlight for me is this play that we were a part of developing for years and years called The Apartment with music by Taylor Brooke and it was directed by his sister Catherine Brooke and the script was by Shawnee Anilo and working on it over multiple years with different actors and I just really enjoyed that process. I love theater a lot and I love being in theatrical environments um also the podcast is actually a huge highlight for me I love the conversations that happen on the podcast I love listening and editing it and inviting people on and another favorite thing is our ongoing collaboration over the past year with Brandon Lopez because when we work with him we don't read off a score which actually feels like a huge risk to us as a group, <laughs> even though we all improvise in various ways on our own and in other contexts. I think just for talk to make that leap in public felt a little bit scary. Um, but I think now that we've played with Brandon a few times and gotten used to it and 
we made a recording that I think sounds really awesome that I'm excited about. Um, that's going to come out in the fall, I think. Yeah, that project is a highlight to me as well. So I guess just like moving beyond the project specific stuff, like what do you what do you value the most about being in talk and the work that we do as an ensemble? And I guess, you know, the if if I were an objective interviewer, I might say, like, what do you not like about it? But, you know, so easy on my heart. <laughs> not objective. <laughs> I love that we've been working together for a long time now and we have these relationships that we've built up over years um, that and even though we haven't been playing with Madison for as long it feels like talk like as an entity as like a, a, a mesh of relationships has sort of existed for long enough that it's like a thing outside of us which is really cool and uh, another like part of the work that I really like is I think we have a really good blend of being sort of serious and rigorous and like really trying to put out something good and sort of polished in a way but at the same time we're not like stiff about it like at the same time we listen to our instincts and we have fun and we listen to our desires and I think it's hard to find that kind of balance um, in life and in art. Could you give an example of that? I'm really curious because um, I feel like there are several that come to mind for me but I'm wondering if you could maybe describe one for the listener. Hmm. Like for instance with with the mouthpiece 28 video we could have had that idea and semi-prepared and showed up in the space and taken some footage and kind of quickly edited it together and put it up and it wouldn't have been as good but because we really took the time to talk and plan it out and people in the group like David and Laura really worked hard on the editing um that is like an essential part of the magic it wasn't just the idea mm -hmm. and just that expands to every rehearsal like we um we really pay attention to details of tuning and rhythmic alignment and stuff but we also always talk about what we think the piece means or what we want to do with it musically um I hope that's specific enough. <laughs> no, yeah, it totally makes sense. I I think like the Mouthpiece 28 video is a really interesting example because it is like we sat in a room for several hours together and literally went measure by measure through the score to figure out the direction of that, which I, I feel like is very special. Yeah. yeah, it was kind of like a group. It was like a collaborative analysis, you know. <laughs> Yeah, like a visual analysis. <laughs> like, what does this part of the score look like? Yeah, that was really cool. Yeah, I mean, I remember going through that. We, like, we tried to kind of parse out similar material in different sections. And, you know, okay, do we want to have similar visuals accompanying that? Or do we want to highlight something different the next time that it comes around? Or, yeah, that was that was a really interesting uh, kind of way to to go about analysis 
Yeah, we need more like expansive analysis generally in this world. Yeah, I agree. And I think in some ways, I hope that the podcast kind of is like that too, like an alternate form of analysis. Mm, I like that idea a lot. Yeah. Or a space where people can engage in analysis if they want of their own work or of other people's works. Like the the recent episode with um, Jesse and Isaac felt really like a critical analysis sort of of Jesse's work, which is cool. It did, yeah. And I, yeah, I, I think that that, that's something that, that I really value about talk as well is, you know, we play a lot of music that doesn't necessarily fit into the forms of analysis, or it's, it's not coherent with the forms of analysis that we might have all been taught at conservatory. Um, so then kind of like engaging in groupthink to figure out how to understand a piece of music that might be expansive in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I dig the idea of like communal analysis as well. Like, fuck yeah. So speaking of, you had mentioned a little bit ago, Charlotte, that like some of your favorite projects with tech were stuff that was like outside of our collective comfort zone. And I'm wondering how that urge kind of played a part in your entrance into music in general. Or how did you get into music and especially the music that you focus on now? Yeah, that is that feeling of being outside the comfort zone is so part of why I'm drawn to music. I didn't really I didn't come from the musical family, really. My mom is an accountant and my dad or was and my dad was uh, like a cheese salesman. (laughs) Um, But I really loved to sing around the house. So luckily they just they signed me up for piano lessons and then voice lessons when I was older and Uh, I just found an outlet or a freedom in music to express myself, be myself in a way that I couldn't be in my daily life, which I think is pretty common for a lot of musicians. So I just really enjoyed it. But I think one of the crucial moments where I was like, oh, maybe this is actually what I'm supposed to do was um, when I was 15 or 16. I had started taking piano lessons with a new teacher, John Camille Farah who now lives in Berlin, but at the time was in, I think he lives in Berlin, but at the time he was in Toronto. And he told me about John Cage and how John Cage invented the prepared piano and made this score called Four Minutes and 33 Seconds. And I was like totally fascinated and went home got on the like 2003 internet and tried to find all the information I could about John Cage and reading his writing and reading what other people had written about him just blew open my ideas about what music could be and therefore like what art could be or what I could be And I just find that feeling of like having your paradigms blown open to be the best fucking feeling. (laughs) So I think I'm just always kind of seeking out that feeling, um, which is why, uh, yeah, why I value the stuff that talk does that is outside our comfort zones is because I feel like it's that kind of work that expands our paradigm of what we could be 
And that's also why, like, I, f- I went to University of Toronto for classical voice, and I found that program to be really stifling. And uh, there were good things about the music faculty, uh, but the classical voice department, I felt really, like, almost killed my favorite parts of myself. <laughs> so, uh, conflicted relationship with classical training, definitely. You, you know, you've been recently, like in the last few years, you've been taking a lot more like classical voice lessons. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, could, maybe could you talk a little bit more about that relationship that you have with opera or like, you know, classical operatic voice? Uh, yeah, that's a good point. I have like gotten back into it recently. Um, the thing that I love about classical singing even though that term can mean many, many different things, like sort of bel canto technique is a way to learn how to be loud and make a huge, rich, multifaceted sound with just your body. Not only does it sound cool, but it just like physically feels amazing when you're singing well. So that's the part of it that I love. But the part of it that I don't love is I feel like it's common for teachers to make assumptions about the kind of career you're going to have, the skills you need to make it in the quote-unquote industry of classical music. There's a tendency to put people in tiny little boxes and just try to cut off all the parts of them that don't fit into the tiny boxes (laughs) and the reality is that that industry is tiny and most people that study classical voice uh, are not going to fit into it in a way that is I think rewarding to them (laughs) so I think it's actually kind of unethical to teach kids that come into a program at 18 or 19 like this is what it means to be a musician when really it can mean anything to be a musician so after my undergrad I stopped studying classical voice because it was all connected to me like the shitty parts of it and the great parts were just inextricably linked so I couldn't bear to like fully engage in the great parts of it But at some point, I just kind of realized, I think maybe it's possible to engage in the great parts and just not engage in the shitty parts. And I think part of that realization came from doing new music and finding people that got me as a whole person. So that gave me kind of the confidence to be like, to trust myself and I didn't have to be scared of what a teacher might tell me because I could just trust my own instincts and take what was useful and leave what was not useful. When you're younger, it's hard to do that, I think. Yeah, I'm really inspired by that. And especially what you're saying about um, not just development of the instinct, but development of the trust of your instinct. A little bit ago, you mentioned the feeling of being out of your comfort zone or the feeling of exploring something new. And I'm wondering if you could describe what that 
feeling feels like? Like, does it exist in the sensorium? And then maybe how that feeling plays into your intuitive um, perspectives of what you need to keep and let go of in interacting with music and arts. Wow, I love that question. I've never thought about what it physically feels like. Hmm. It feels like when it's intense, it's like like butterflies all over your body. It's like tingles like all over your body. And you're not sure if you're afraid or like completely like turned on or what. It's just like tingles that sound yes <laughs> I totally feel that and I I feel like that kind of like tingle like it, for me it's like a it's like a full body tingle but especially like around my ears and like it's like a helmet around my head do you have that experience I have like this like helmet of of like ting yeah this this happens when I like make a sound that is just like a really good sound or like if if I'm listening to really good music do you guys get that am I crazy I I think for me it lives more like in my torso, like my rib cage, my arms maybe. I don't know. I've been thinking about this a lot lately as it pertains to like where we locate like quote emotional feelings in our bodies as musicians because I I wonder Marina if your head you get helmet zone because like your head is so proximal to the issuance of your sound on your body. Yeah, I think um, so. Because I experience a lot of my um, physical and emotional reactions to things in my shoulders, down my spine, and the sternum, all of these very flute zone areas. So I wonder maybe if torso arms that checks out with you, Shar. Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, I don't, we don't really use our arms when we're singing, but absolutely the torso all the stuff involved in breathing some singers use their arms when they're singing <laughs> sometimes you do if we have no idea where we are you're like yeah, this is I, the downbeat <laughs> just to kind of bring that question back to what you're we talking about does the physical feeling ever inform your intuitive experience of what you want to take or leave in uh, interacting with the music you make hmm. you know that's also an interesting question or an interesting way to phrase it because I think, okay, the way I make music absolutely is informed by that feeling. But I think the music I make, when I, when I think about that phrase, I'm not sure if that's exactly how you worded it, but um, is dependent a lot on the people around me. Um, and the emails that come in my inbox or the, the whatever. So the situations that I find myself in are not necessarily always totally guided by like what gives me butterflies. But, um, um, and I, I think it, it all builds on itself. Like the way I sing or the, the work that I do influences the kind of people I meet and the kind of gigs that I'm whatever hired for um but it's a more complex it doesn't always feel like every 
decision I make is governed by that feeling. Would you mind um, maybe sharing with us um, a little bit more about the the work that you are doing? You're the, you know, you're in a few ensembles. You have a handful of different musical outlets. Uh, could you walk us through some of those? Sure. Um, so in addition to talk, I also sing often with Ekmele's vocal ensemble, which is led by Jeff Gavitt. And there's a core group of six singers. Um, sometimes we do shows with less voices or more voices. But we do very new music, notated music, a lot like talk. We released an album a few months ago called a Howl, which was also a prayer, which has an awesome piece by Taylor Brooke and also music by Chris Trapani and Aaron Gee. I mean, all the pieces are great, but I just highlight Taylor Brooke because maybe talk fans are curious about what Taylor would write for Six Voices. Um, but anyway, so there's Ekmele's and uh, I do work as a soloist or just sort of floating ensemble member with groups like International Contemporary Ensemble and Talia. And so that's one part of my practice. Brooklyn Art Song Society uh, is another group that I sing with. Um, and then I also do work that is also often led by people with advanced degrees in music, but sounds a little bit more like popular music, like uh, this prog rock band called The Nels, which is led by Andrew McKenna Lee, and Happy Place, which is a band led by Will Mason. I'm working with a composer, Anna Wiesner, right now to make maybe indie music inflected arrangements of a song cycle she originally wrote to be more traditional chamber work. Um, I've contributed some vocals to liturgy recordings, which is an awesome, like, transcendental metal project by Hunter Hunt Hendricks. So that's another part of my practice. I sing at a church regularly in a choir that does mostly, like, Palestrina and Victoria and Talis, so older choral music. I do free improvisation occasionally, mostly in private, but I would like to do more of it. And sometimes I do what is more often called composition. <laughs> <laughs> like this um, sound installation that I'm working on right now that's going to go up in the summer. That's It's going to be like a fixed tape piece. So I'm not notating it, I'm just recording myself into a computer and it's going to turn into the surround sound sort of experience. So that's kind of a rundown of my usual <laughs> activities. It's a really glorious rundown. <laughs> Can you just speak a little bit more about your composition or generative art or whatever you want to call it just like um what is how would you describe your aesthetic how would I describe my aesthetic wow Mar with the hard questions I don't know I feel like that's a I'm not ready to answer that question fair yeah I'm still working on it I don't know 
I guess I'm interested, maybe some things that I'm interested in are moving the listener, whatever, between states where they feel like they know what's happening and then where what they think is happening breaks apart. I mean, I think that's just a standard musical thing that happens in all music, like tension and release or expectation and surprise. And I guess with the installation I'm working on, I guess one of the things I'm thinking of is like having spent some time on Governor's Island and working in that house like two summers ago now um, with Natasha Deals and on this piece that she created with Sam Scranton. Seeing the people that came to see that piece, it was a lot of people that are not like in our scene necessarily, hadn't like heard of Natasha Deals before, had no idea what they were walking into. And I really liked that. So with this piece, I'm thinking about how I can like create a space that is really enticing and beautiful for like people that don't care about experimental music but but it's also weird then like to I can't actually inhabit that mindset and it's kind of presumptuous of me to think that I could so maybe it's just a weird thought experiment yeah I always wonder that with you know because so much of the music that we play has such a, I mean, it's a small audience. Yeah, and I think that's cool. Like, I don't mind, there are people like, you know, the composer David Lang, for instance. I remember hearing him say in an interview something about wanting to make music that had huge doors that, like, anyone could just walk in and that made me think of the Apple Store. I'm not sure if he actually used that <laughs> analogy or not, but like the way he was describing the music that he wanted to make, he made it sound like an Apple Store. And I would rather think about it as like a tiny little door, but it's like glowing. There's and like a you... lot of signs pointing to it. No, there's no signs. It's hidden. <laughs> it's kind of hidden, but it's like... If you have the courage to poke your head in the door or the curiosity to just take that step, there will be enough in this hidden space that you can grab onto that tells you, like, yeah, come in. like, Come check this out. There's going to be computers and iPads. and No, there's going to be, like, ponies crossed with sloths who, like, <laughs> s- speak eight languages and give you back massages. I love it's that. It's going to smell really good. Oh, yeah. Mm. There's going to be magic windows. Mm. Yes. Just like a beautiful pink, orange, yellow, gold light. A beautiful pink, orange, yellow, gold light does sound like your Governor's Island installation. Yeah. Actually, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) From what I've seen of it as well, yeah. (laughs) So, like, what do you like doing when you're not making music? Because it sounds like you're very busy making music but what else do you do oh yeah I do lots of I do lots of uh like 
sitting and staring and scrolling Instagram and writing angsty journal entries. <laughs> right. um, listening to self-help podcasts. <laughs> Going on long contemplative walks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, in the before times, I really did love going to see, like, new live theater. It was one of my favorite things. Reading, watching movies, stuff like that. Going to the spa with your friends. Yes, going to Beasting. the spa. I used to like going to the gym, like, mostly for the sauna. It was so good. But also cardio making your muscles sore that's something i haven't done much in the past few months that i'm looking forward to getting back to today's a good day for a run it's beautiful yeah it's out. officially above 60 charlotte yes. can run again it's my threshold <laughs> yeah yeah it is fucking glorious out um what are you know just a softball question here what are some of your hopes and dreams for your life <sighs> I think Marina wrote that one. So. I might have I might have come up with that question. It's a really good question. You came up with a lot of good questions. Thanks. I hope I continue to uh, become less petty and more generous. <laughs> we could all that strive for on that. my wall. Yeah. Tattoo backwards on my neck. I mean, oh, yes. Oh man. That's my that's my overarching just like Less defensive, more confident, truly confident, where I can listen to the viewpoints of others and absorb them and not be threatened by them. That's my main goal, really. I would say, Shar, as your friend as an, and as a listener to your response of that question, that was a very non-petty and generous uh way of interacting with that question <laughs> you're on the right path well I started off a little bit not generous but I got to the generous <laughs> progress um okay so then really important question um so little trivia fact about Charlotte Mundy is that she is Canadian um True. for any of the listeners who didn't get that already um, what's your favorite thing about Canada? Like, what's your what's your favorite Canadian thing? You can take that however you want. Well, th- my family is there, and I it was a great place to grow up. So by family, I mean my parents and my brother. There's lots of space and lots of natural resources and not a lot of people. Universal health care. Party on. They actually yeah. gave people $2,000 every month starting at the beginning of the pandemic. What? Yeah. Stimmy. Mm-hmm. Are they still doing it? Yeah, I think so. That's absurd. I mean, it's not absurd. It's it's great. Yeah. And then what about, uh, you've been living in New York now for like, what, like 10 years or something. What do you, what do you like about New York? It just feels really freeing to me to be here. And uh, in Toronto, there's just more of a sense of politeness I just love the exuberance of New York and the wildness of it. 
ambition is embraced here and it's also kind of okay to argue with people I think it's actually encouraged to argue with people and this was something that when I because I grew up in New York and then I left New York to go to school in Ohio and I found out that uh, a lot of people don't like it when you just argue for the sake of arguing I still have to work on that (laughs) but it's also fun but then you can always get your like argumentative catharsis. Like that's something I miss in the in the pandemic era. It's like the catharsis of arguing with someone who's like, I don't know, on the train. <laughs> and like, do you I argue with I... people on the train, Laura? Yeah, no, it's good. Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. Like people renegotiating boundaries constantly in ways that are not polite, but are direct. I think now would be a good time to ask you some really important questions. Uh, you want to play a game? Let's play a game. The game is called Would You Rather? Yes. We're bringing it back. Yes. For those of you who listened to the earlier talk seasons, this this is, a, this is an old favorite. We're bringing back. Okay, Charlotte, would you rather... For the rest of your life, only drink coffee and no tea, or only drink tea and no coffee? Mara, again, you write the most fucked up hard questions. That's a hard one. I looked at this question in advance, so I've thought about it a little bit. (laughs) And I think even though I love coffee and drink it every day, if I had to make one choice for the rest of my life I'd probably choose tea because tea can be like almost anything you know it's so true like if I missed cappuccinos or something I could do like tea lattes be similar but if I missed chamomile tea just really weak coffee (laughs) yeah or ginger with lemon and honey would I not be allowed to drink that what counts as tea Yeah, I guess it's just like water steeped with anything besides coffee beans. But if you steep your coffee beans in water, is it just coffee tea? I mean, that's what, is coffee just (laughs) coffee tea? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, or maybe it's a question like, where do you get your caffeine? Like, if I just had to choose between coffee beans and black tea, I'd choose coffee. Would you rather go to the moon? Or go to a lush private island on a imaginary fabricated earth. Why not this earth? I'm thinking of the earth that we drew on a globe in an airport somewhere like two years ago. There was this like chalkboard globe in a Joe and the Juice. Yeah. Joe and the Juice. Yeah, and we, we, we drew a, an imaginary earth. And then we decided where we would put our commune, I think. Yeah, and we had a lot of concert spaces and art spaces. Yeah. Most of the globe was dominated by concert and art spaces. <laughs> then there was like a farm. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of like a, like a protected lands as well. A I lot think. of protected lands, yeah. So private island on that earth or the moon? I think private island on that earth because it's still kind of in, in formation. So I could probably still make tweaks to it and then just... Like, maybe I could change the gravity so it could be kind of like the moon, but um, I wouldn't have to wear a spacesuit. That'd be cool. 
Would you rather get to live one day as a hawk or some other flighted animal or as a dolphin or some other like water animal? I think as a flighted animal. Flight is just so cool. I mean, I'm sure dolphins feel like they're flying, but I don't know. Flight. You could be like a flying animal that can also di- you could be like a diving duck. You get- oh. Does that does that break the game? Can you do that? Yeah, that broke the game. That's not Fuck. fair. <laughs> <laughs> you could be a flying fish because they don't really fly very much. They just leap out of the water. Yeah, what if you chose chicken? If you were you wanted to be a chicken, <laughs> they're not a flighted animal. Chickens don't fly. I know, like or wh- ostrich. Oh, rough. Ostrich would be kind of fun, though, because, like, ostriches, they're just, like, massive and strong. They're pretty freaky. And then they, like, bury their heads in the sand. That's so cool. They have really long um, fingernails. Yeah, they're fantastic beasts. They once chased my family for, like, a kilometer. What? That was scary. (laughs) That would be Namibia life. Um... Not my personal experience. So would you rather keep bees or keep ostriches? <laughs> hmm. Like be a, a beekeeper or an ostrich farmer or whatever they're called. Yeah, I don't know what the fuck you farm. Like their eggs? I don't know. I guess eggs. Eggs and feathers? Probably feathers. I think whichever one is lower maintenance probably. <laughs> So probably the bees, I'm guessing. I don't know. I feel like ostriches can take care of themselves, you know? Like, you just give them a big area to roam. Bees, you gotta... That that sounds hard. Beekeeping sounds really hard. I, I loved that movie about the was it Macedonian or wherever they are, beekeepers. But that looks just like... You get bee stings all the time. I'd hate that. Well, I don't know if Charlotte would be a... A, a wild beekeeper who keeps bees in rocks and mountainsides. I mean, even if you're just keeping them in like a more controlled environment, then don't you still get a ton of bee stings all the time? I guess you I can know. like wear a beekeeping suit that... I think I could get used to it. I feel like they wouldn't sting Charlotte. Maybe not. I feel like Charlotte is like um like the opening of... Is it Cinderella where like all the... All the forest creatures like just like come and sit on her windowsill and she's just like, hello, <laughs> deers and birds. Is that what's that movie? I think, I think it's Cinderella. So. Yeah, they also help her to get dressed. I yeah, think. I feel like that's how Charlotte wakes up every morning. That's my. But with bees. But with bees. <laughs> A swarm of bees. <laughs> ah, that would be. Oh, my gosh. I want a Disney movie where the princess is queen of the insects. Oh, Yeah millipedes just like popping off it's like a bug's life only disney princess also like a bug's life was not very good oh don't even talk about that don't talk about a bug's life like you know what you're talking about laura (laughs) so charlotte would you rather eat an asturtium or a pansy oh i don't know my flowers should i google image search them yeah or you could just do like word association and vibe. 
Okay, I see nasturtiums. Those two flowers look really similar. <laughs> nasturtiums are really spicy and pansies are kind of more like grassy. Okay. Yeah, pansy. I mean, no, 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 nasturtium. I would rather eat a nasturtium. Pansies are really beautiful, but they don't look like you should eat them. Would you rather eat a nasturtium or a dandelion? I feel like I eat dandelion greens relatively often compared to nasturtiums, so I would like it if nasturtiums were more common. So I'll say nasturtium. <laughs> would you rather eat nasturtium or wild bergamot? I think bergamot. Like Would you rather eat bergamot or clover? I don't know. A salad <laughs> of all of them. What about wild bergamot or Queen Anne's lace? Hot disclaimer, Queen Anne's lace does not taste very good, but it's part of the wild <laughs> carrot family. I don't I think we should stop with this direction of questioning. Charlotte, did you know that you can saute <laughs> sunflower buds? Like little artichokes. Okay. What about those? I would love to eat those. That sounds great. Um, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, thank Charlotte. You yes, thank you. This has been the Talk Editions podcast, episode 18 with Charlotte Mundy, Laura Cox, and me, Marina Kifferstein. The music in this episode is from Queen of Virtues, composed by Charlotte Mundy and performed by Charlotte and Laura Cox. If you're enjoying the Talk Editions podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review it so others can find us. This episode was produced and recorded by Charlotte Mundy, Marina Kifferstein, and Laura Cox, and edited by Charlotte Mundy. If you like the Talk Editions podcast, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe so others can find us. For more information about talk, go to talkensemble.com or find us on your social media platform of choice. Thanks for listening. <laughs>